Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. Okay, I promise you guys will get to socialize later. I'm going to be the mean teacher lady who's going to tell you to sit your butts down. (sighs) All right, thank you guys. We appreciate it. We just want to be respectful of our speaker's time. Awesome. And I see Dr. Chen here as well. Awesome. Okay. Well, I'm going to go ahead and introduce our next session. And I believe we're still, um, I'm going to look in the back here. We're still going to have Dr. Bowen come in first since he's prepped and ready to go. And then we will move over to Dr. Chen unless I get a nod to say, go back to the beginning. No, we're good. Okay. All right. So let me go ahead and introduce our speakers. Okay, so Dr. Chen grew up in Michigan, went to college at Stanford, and he worked in a lab in the anesthesia department studying the pain receptors. He then completed his MD-PhD program at Weill Cornell Medical College in New York City, and he stayed at Cornell for his residency in radiation oncology, after which he joined the faculty here at UW and Fred Hutch. And he specializes in the treatment of genital Torinary, genitourinary and ocular malignancies with expertise in proton beam therapy. Dr. Bowen has trained at the prestigious Cleveland Clinic in the ophthalmic oncology, and he completed his advanced retinal surgical training at the University of Iowa. He is a member of the Society of Heed Fellows, and that is a distinguished organization that supports the advancement of ophthalmic research and education. We're so grateful to have both of them here today, so let's go ahead and welcome them to the stage and bring up Dr. Bowen online. I will thank you very much. Are you able to hear me okay? Yes, we can hear you fine, Dr. Bowen. Thank you. Very good. So I was asked to discuss radiation retinopathy. Um, We may want to go full screen on your slides if we can. Hmm. I think I am full screen. Let's see. What do I need to do to flip that? all good that's always it's always how it rolls with technology but if you can't Mm -hmm. i think nope there they go they're good thank you yeah you bet so we're going to talk about radiation retinopathy today um and you know we've been discussing uveal melanoma um and you know that can be in the iris the ciliary body or the choroid and this is a a nice representation of uh, a choroidal melanoma uh, where we see this Uh, orange pigment and whenever we see these choroidal melanomas we you know we're thinking about not only how we can treat the tumor but how we can preserve vision and reduce the risks of radiation retinopathy the location to the fovea the center of vision is right here as well as the optic nerve and that all is important in our uh, radiation planning Uh, there are different types of treatment for choroidal melanoma, and I'll just touch on a few of these. 
Uh, plaque brachytherapy is here. This is a bottle cap like uh, gold plaque uh, in which iodine-125, which is the most common type of radiation, is used um, to place over the tumor on the outside of the eye. Another type is proton beam therapy, uh, uses charged particles. And in this situation, a, a plaque is not used. Instead, tantalum clips are placed to guide uh, the location for the treatment. Uh, this is a mask that's placed over to help for uh, stabilizing the, the face so it doesn't move as much. And then ultimately is removal of the eye, which we uh, try to avoid if, if possible. As far as the efficacy, proton is as equally as effective as uh, plaque for local control. There are different side effects associated with each one. I tend to use proton when the tumor wraps around the optic nerve greater than 180 degrees, or if the tumor is multilobulated, or if it spans two rectus muscles, uh, which would be more difficult to treat with plaque brachytherapy. When we have uh, a more circumscribed uh, choroidal melanoma, this is my uh, drawing that I, I put in the charts and for preparation for plaque, you can see here, this is the melanoma. Um, there were some other retinal findings noted here, a little hole with laser. Uh, oftentimes there's a, some like a retinal attachment that's associated with it. But then we superimpose that onto our uh, wide field imaging um, that can be seen here. So we've got the tumor that's down here. Then we can visualize the optic nerve and the location to the fovea. Um, then we're able to plan out uh, where the rectus muscles are and if rectus muscles are needed to be taken um, off temporarily in order to place the plaque. But what I want to do and the reason why I'm showing this is to draw attention to the effects of radiation. We know that we have excellent success with uh, plaque brachytherapy as well as proton uh, therapy for local control. Um, in this case, we use 85 gray, uh, which is the amount of radiation to treat the choroidal melanoma. There is a, a wake of radiation that spreads beyond that. So right here, we see that the optic nerve and the macula are going to receive 30 gray radiation. So even though the target um, melanoma is 85, despite it's you know ending two millimeters beyond that, the optic nerve and macula will, will receive radiation as well. And so when we talk with our patients, you know, early on, we are able to kind of explain how much, you know, that we, you know, we're gonna do our best to to treat this tumor, have good local control and achieve that purpose. But we will need to manage the side effects of having radiation hitting normal tissue, both the macula and the optic nerve, as well as if there's other locations uh, such as the cornea. This is an example here of uh, a lady who had a melanoma, um, choroidal melanoma, and this is uh, pre-treatment. This is a, an OCT of the macula. So you can see this line here, this is the, the retina, the macula. And it's very beautiful. We can see there's a nice dip right here, which is the fovea, which is where all of the light focuses in, uh, and it creates an image for us to see. 
um, these lines are the different layers in which the photoreceptors are detecting signal and then sending it to the brain. After about uh, five years of after treatment, you can see here that because of the location of the tumor being so close uh, to the macula, there was significant macular edema. And this is illustrated by this large area of black uh, blackness um, underneath the retina or within the retina. And that's fluid. And that macular edema is what's resulting in decreased vision, as well as the effects of radiation on the photoreceptors, which conduct the light. So when we talk about side effects of radiation, there's many different types. We can have surface uh, radiation effects, such as dry eye symptoms, eyelid swelling, cataracts. And we definitely see those more when we use proton, because the proton, although it does a great job at bypassing most of that, um, it does still have you know, effects on the eyelids and the, the oil glands that are on the eyelids that help keep it moist are usually affected. Cataract and, and dry eye are, are pretty common. We can get some ocular inflammation. So as the tumor is dying, which is what we want it to do, the cells cause a robust inflammatory response. And so those need to be managed appropriately. Radiation retinopathy is the most common cause for decreased vision in, in a more permanent longstanding stance. And that's when the inside of the blood vessels, they become leaky. And so then they leak proteins and lipids uh, as well as fluid. And that causes the macular edema. You can also get in the area of treated retina. So outside of, you know, well, I guess the retina overlying the tumor as well as in the area of normal tumor or normal retina without tumor, the um, you'll get that ischemia or, or non-function of, of the normal retina. And then optic neuropathy, if it's too close, the actual optic nerve stops functioning properly. So how do we mitigate these things? How do we work with it? So there's lots of different treatment options. I'm going to focus primarily on um, radiation retinopathy. So we know that for treatment, we can do steroid injections, and they can be inside the eye, or they can be around the eye. This is an example of um, an injection of a steroid pellet called alluvian. And I know this looks <laughs> painful. Fortunately, we're able to do this in a very um, comfortable fashion for our patients, where we numb up the eye, and then we place um, a needle into the eye and inject uh, either uh, steroids or steroid pellets um, that help decrease inflammation. The reason why I wanted to show this image is because the upcoming clinical trial that I'm going to talk about is going to use this, um, this pellet that's injected into the eye and it lasts for a long time. Uh, you can also inject anti-VEGF treatment. Avastin is the most common. And then there's a new drug, um, Vibismo, which I'm sure you've seen on TV for macular degeneration and diabetes, um, is part of the new clinical trial that is going to be used. Um, and then for laser treatment, we can use both focal laser in the macula to help with macular edema, or in the periphery, we can treat the retina that has been treated with radiation and is 
ischemic or it's not functioning properly. And the reason why we do that is because the retina needs lots of oxygen to survive and, and function properly. And so when the retina is negatively affected by the radiation, it starts to grow blood vessels to try to get enough oxygen. But unfortunately, those blood vessels tend to grow in areas that are not normal, such as on the iris or in the draining system of the eye. And it can cause new blood vessels or neovascularization. And that can result in bleeding. It can result in uh, high eye pressures and glaucoma. And so we can mitigate that and reduce those risks by putting laser in the area um, where there is radiation retinopathy. So radiation retinopathy um, prevention with steroid. So here's a very nice study that showed um, a control group and those with trimcinolone. And we could see that there was less macular edema with the use of steroid treatment. This is another example, but using anti-VEGF. So we know that we can reduce the risk of poor vision with injecting anti-VEGF. In this particular case, was using Avastin or Bevacizumab. And as a reminder, this is kind of the target of what we're looking at right now. This is the macula, and then this dark stuff here is the macular edema. So there are many great previous studies, I selected just two, that suggest that anti-VEGF and steroids may each have a role in prevention of macular edema and vision loss associated with radiation retinopathy. And consequently, a treatment that prevents the development of radiation retinopathy would have important consequences for many eyes that are successfully treated for choroidal melanoma, but are at risk for developing severe radiation retinopathy and vision loss over time. So this is where the DRCR comes in. The DRCR is a, a large network. It's a collaborative group. Um, where uh, all of us from different sites uh, come together and we want to ask certain questions and then find solid answers that are not biased. So this is called protocol AL. And this is looking at furisimab, um, which is Vibismo, and then fluocinolone, which is Alluvian uh, implant versus observation for the prevention of vision loss um, due to radiation retinopathy. And Arun seeing at Cleveland Clinic um, my previous oncology mentor is the chair on that. And this is um, supported by the National Eye Institute um, in moving this forward. So the question that is being asked is, can one of these medications improve vision long-term and reduce macular edema at three years after plaque brachytherapy treatment? In this cohort, we'll be looking just at plaque brachytherapy and not proton. The reason why is because plaque brachytherapy uh, is more widely available and not every institution has uh, uh, proton. Also, the dose used for proton versus plaque is slightly different. So we are focusing at this time on plaque brachytherapy uh, patients. There will be three groups. The first group is the furosemab, 
also known as Vibismo when you're watching uh, TV and looking at ads. And the people that are randomized into that uh, group will receive injections into the affected eye every three months. The second group is Alluvian, and Alluvian is the steroid pellet. Uh, it will receive an injection um, at the initial visit after treatment, and then 24 months later. And the reason why is because Alluvian uh, has this, it's a little canister almost, and it's a slow emitting uh, pellet that releases this steroid over a period of 24 months. Um, so very, very nice for uh, reducing the amount of injections. And then this is the observation group. So the current management is, is in many places, is to uh, wait until you actually develop macular edema and then receive treatment, uh, either steroid or anti-VEGF, at the time of developing macular edema. So this is would be the observation group would actually be what's currently being done in many many places. The follow-up is. Uh, in essence, every three months for the next three years. So that is an increased amount of time for patients. Um, there will be slightly more imaging at each appointment. Um, and it is, like I mentioned, for three years follow-up. At the same time, having this close follow-up will allow us to gauge the efficacy and, the, and monitor improvement and changes for each of these. This is one of the first... Um, really big randomized clinical trials after the COM study that's been collaborative. We're very excited. Um, not only is this going to be very exciting to answer this question that we have about improving vision uh, through new medications um, in, in reducing the risks of vision loss from radiation retinopathy, but we're also building this really strong network um, between ocular oncologists and retina specialists in in oncology and answering more and more questions. So I'm really excited with this uh, new movement of working together in, in collaboration. So that is what I have for you today. Any questions? I think I'm on. Now I'm on. Sorry, Dr. Bowen. I accidentally turned my mic off and forgot. Um, Dr. Bowen, do you have time to wait for Q&A at around 8.40 after Dr. Chin? Yep, that sounds good. Okay, awesome. Then we will bring you back on for Q&A in about 20 minutes. Um, with, that, with that, we're going to go ahead and change over to Dr. Chen's slides. And um, those of you who do have questions, if you have any questions around you know, radiation, side effects, things to do, things not to do, uh, write those down or send those in via the chat. So, Dr. Chen, I'm going to turn it over to you. All right, good morning, everybody. So, I'm Dr. Chen. I'm here at the University of Washington. I'm in the radiation oncology department. Uh, let's see, I think I use this. So, I was asked today to give kind of two related talks. I kind of just combined them all into one talk um, about radiation basics. So kind of three main questions I was asked to cover are what is radiation, 
why or how does it work, and then how do we make a plan, either with plaque or with protons. I thought it most appropriate to spend most of the time on these first two questions. That third question is quite complicated, and it's not clear how much I can discuss that here, but we'll go over that in basics, and then we'll spend a lot of time on the first two questions. So first of all, what is radiation? It's a very vague concept, but in general, radiation is, is the movement of energy from one place to the other. Now, it has to satisfy certain physical definitions. It has to be a movement of energy that operates in ways that reflect both wave theory as well as particle theory. But anyways, it's basically movement of energy from one place to the other. There's a lot of different kinds of radiation you're all probably already familiar with. You can kind of see on the slide here. It's a little small. I'm not sure if you can see this. But this is a spectrum of energy. On the left side of the screen are lower energy types of radiation. And as it moves to the right, it gets higher and higher energy. So on the left, you have things like power coursing through power lines. You have the waves that transmit information to radios and cell phones. These are lower energy radiation waves. Then there's microwaves. Those are things that fire into food to heat it up for us. Infrared. There's a narrow spectrum of, of, this, of this energy spectrum that's a visible light. So from 400 to 700 nanometer wavelength, radiation waves can be seen by our eyes. And so that's the visible spectrum of light. Above the visible spectrum of light, you have UV rays, which we're all very familiar with. And then X-rays, gamma rays, cosmic rays, those are the highest energy radiation waves that we've studied. So all these are different types of radiation waves. Now along the top, you'll see that radiation can roughly be separated into two categories, non-ionizing and ionizing. So an ion is a charged particle. And so what ionizing radiation is, is radiation that's high energy enough that it can actually generate ions. And it usually does that by knocking off electron particles from atoms. There's other ways as well. But that's the primary way that ionizing radiation can occur. All right, so <clears throat> the way that we harness radiation for treatment. Well, first of all, there's natural radiation in everything around us. Even if doctors like me and physicists that I work with didn't generate radiation through man-made techniques, there is radiation all around us already. We are exposed to radiation just by living life on Earth. Now, I know a lot of people are always very concerned about limiting their radiation exposure, and that's true, it's very important. But the fact of the matter is, there is radiation everywhere. There's radiation in the soil, there's radiation in the air. Radiation is coming from outer space and hitting us every day. And it's true that the more you fly, the closer you get to that, the more radiation exposure you get. Living in cities, I think, because of all the radi radiation that's in concrete and all the buildings, I think does increase your radiation exposure. Certain occupations obviously increase your radiation exposure. <clears throat> and this radiation mostly comes, except for the space one, but all the ones in the soil and the concrete, comes from radioactive decay. So, <clears throat> excuse me. the way this radiation generates is when there are unstable isotopes. Isotopes are like versions of atoms. So if you go back to the periodic table from high school chemistry class, there's a lot of atoms that make up our world, and they have stable and unstable versions. The unstable versions don't like to be unstable. The universe likes to gen generally push it towards more stable forms. It can take varying amounts of time, but when an unstable version of an atom turns into a stable version or a more stable version, 
it goes through a process called radioactive decay. And that process oftentimes generates extra particles and extra energy rays, and that's what radiation is. So uranium is a very common example people are familiar with. Radium is another one which Marie Curie helped um, discover and used to be you know, used in a lot of paint to make watches glow in the dark and things like that. These things are just naturally found elements that over time will slowly or quickly, depending on the element, release radiation. And we can harness that radiation in both treatment and other applications as well. So that's radioactive decay. The other primary way that we generate radiation for treatment in medicine is through particle generation. So the most common example of that now is a linear accelerator, shortened for LINEC. And so this is a simplified schematic of what a LINEC is. There's a lot of things on here, but suffice it to say that using batteries and voltages and, and, and currents and filaments and vacuum tubes, we can generate electrons, we can accelerate those electrons to high speeds, we can either use those electrons to treat patients, or we can use the electrons to hit a target, oftentimes a tungsten target, and that can generate x-rays. And so linear accelerators, you may be familiar more with things like this, which are particle collision things, like uh, colliders. This is a large hadron collider in Germany. These often generate particles and accelerate them to such insane speeds and then collide them with each other to study what happens afterwards. And so this is a version of a linear accelerator. But this is what you're more familiar with if you've ever had treatment or known someone who's had treatment. These are the linear accelerators we use in clinic. Whereas the previous one was you know, miles, miles long, we can fit these into treatment rooms in the hospital. <clears throat> And all of the particle generation and acceleration happen right in this device that can fit in a room. Um, the previous LINEC that I showed you generated only electrons and x-rays. That is one way that we can treat ocular melanomas and other cancers. But for ocular melanoma specifically, and on some cancers, we also really like to use protons, as Dr. Bowen mentioned. Proton generation takes a little bit of a different technology than an than a X-ray or electron. And so this is an example of a proton facility. It's much, much larger than the LINEC that you need to generate um, X-rays. And that's why almost every center in this country and many centers across the world have LINACs that produce X-rays, but it's not so common to have a proton facility. Um, when ours opened about 10 years ago, I think there were, there were less than 10 centers in the country. Now there's more, there's about 40, 44, but still much fewer than the number of um, X-ray facilities. Proton generation requires a cyclotron. It's a lot more difficult to accelerate a proton to the speeds that you need, the energies that you need. So you need to have, instead of a linear accelerator, a circular accelerator. So you can keep accelerating it faster and faster and faster and faster until it finally gets to the speed that you need that can successfully treat cancer. Once it's accelerated, it gets brought out of the cyclotron through magnets. It goes along this pathway using magnets until it's directed at the patient in a way that we can control with a lot of precision uh, through the proton delivery mechanism. All right, so those, those are the two primary ways that we can 
treat patients with radiation these days. Now, we've heard of plaque versus protons. So plaque is the first one. Plaque uses radioactive decay. As Dr. Bowen mentioned, the most common one is iodine-125. That is an unstable isotope or version of iodine, the element. That doesn't like to stay as iodine-125. It likes to change to a different version of itself. And in doing so, it releases radiation rays. So when you place a, a plaque on someone's eye, it slowly, naturally generates radiation. Now, a brief history of kind of how we discovered radiation and how we started implementing it towards the treatment of, of cancer and other diseases. So the birth of radiation oncology was really 1895, so it's been quite a long time, uh, when um, Wilhelm Conrad Rankin was the first to discover and characterize something he dubbed X-rays. He called it X just because it was a mysterious ray. The X doesn't stand for anything. It's just X-rays. It's cool sounding. But he discovered with his study of cathode tubes and vacuums and things like that, that there was some special unknown particle or wave that was transmitting through objects. He was able to take images. So one of the first X-rays ever taken, you can see, of his wife's hand with a ring on her finger. He was able to take images of things that transmitted through objects and materialized on films on the other side. Very interesting stuff that he discovered. Um, he won the Nobel Prize for the discovery about six years later, but it didn't take too long. Just, just a few months after, in 1896, doctors were very entrepreneurial at the time and thought, hey, there's this new X-ray. Can we treat cancer with it? <laughs> Let's try. And so the first patients with cancer were treated with X-rays in both the United States and in Europe just a few months later in 1896. Now that same year is when Henri Becquerel in France and Marie and Pierre Curie discovered and characterized radioactive decay, like I talked about earlier. They were focusing mostly on the discovery of radium, and they all went on to win the Nobel Prize in 1903 as well. Um, you can see along here the timeline. There's been a lot of advances in radiation therapy. 1901 was the first use of brachytherapy, so that's when you have an internal source like plaques for ocular melanoma. Um, I also treat prostate cancer, so the placement of radioactive seeds in the prostate is another popular form of brachytherapy. The first linear accelerator used for treatment was in 1952, and there's been many, many examples of advancement since then. Proton therapy really came about in the late 80s. So proton therapy was FDA approved for treatment of cancer in 1988. So it's been around since then. All right, so again, in the beginning, we weren't really sure what x-rays and radiation therapy was best used for. Now we know it's mostly for cancer. Not all, but mostly for cancer. And I'll explain why in the next few slides why that is. But in the beginning, they kind of tried it for a lot of different conditions and kind of saw what worked and what didn't work. So in the beginning, they tried it for a lot of things. A tinea capitis, a fungal infection of the scalp. It was actually effective because it did kill the fungal infection, but it caused really bad side effects. And we now know we have a lot better treatments for fungal infections and radiation. Tonsillitis, enlarged thymus glands. Uh, ankylosing spondylitis is a, an orthopedic, like a musculoskeletal disease, autoimmune disease, acne, stomach ulcers. All of these were treated in the past somewhat successfully, but no longer because of the toxicity with radiation. Everything after stomach ulcers are benign conditions that we still treat today with radiation. So keloid formations, which is like an overactive scar tissue. 
Um, HOP is, is basically when you do um, an orthopedic surgery, sometimes it can stimulate excessive bone growth, and so we can use radiation to help with that. Graves, ophthalmopathy, uh, Dupuytren's disease, gynecomastia, AVMs, which are arteriovenous malformations, and then lots of benign tumors. So these are things that we still treat, non-malignant, non-cancerous things that we still treat with radiation today. But the majority of what we do in our jobs is treating cancer with radiation. And so how does it do that? How does it actually kill cancer? Well, this silly cartoon, if you can see it, sorry, again, I didn't realize how the screen was gonna look, but I'll read it to you. In the middle is basically a DNA double helix molecule. And the guy on the right, you can imagine, is me, a radiation oncologist, holding a radiation gun. Now, they're not quite that small yet, but maybe in the future, radiation linax will be that small. Um, and I can walk around treating your cancer. But for now, let's, say, let's just imagine that's a linear accelerator. When we zap a cell, what we're really targeting is the DNA in that cell. What's the theory? We'll talk about changes in that. But that's the general theory, is we cause damage to that DNA. The DNA is saying, help. And over on the right is a DNA repair mechanism. Within every cell is machinery and coding and programs to repair different kinds of damage to DNA. And so they got that guy over there saying, don't worry, I'll save you. And most of the time, when we are exposed to radiation in our daily lives, it does cause damage to our DNA, which if left unchecked, if that accumulated, it happened in just the right places, leads to cancer. But most of the time, 99.99% of the time, our DNA repair mechanisms fix that damage before it can accumulate and lead to cancer. Now, in cancer cells, for a cell to have become cancer, those DNA repair mechanisms didn't work enough and didn't work in time. So that cell was able to accumulate mutations in just the right places to turn into cancer. One of the most common places that they had a mutation or DNA damage is knocking out their DNA repair mechanisms. Because if you mutate or knock out your DNA repair mechanism in a cell, then future radiation exposure and DNA damage can then accumulate faster and lead to cancer development. Well, we can take advantage of the fact that cancer cells have lost their DNA repair mechanism. So the general theory behind how radiation works is that it, a radiation beam passes through a, a tumor, let's say, and regular cells. It doesn't really interact so much with the other things in that cell, but the DNA inside the nucleus, inside that cell, is particularly sensitive to that radiation, and there's a lot of DNA damage in both healthy and cancerous cells caused by that radiation. Uh, double strand breaks, single strand breaks, there's a lot of different types of DNA damage, and there are different mechanisms to repair each of those different types. Now, once the radiation passes through, and as you often know, radiation is a multi-day treatment, but let's say after the first day, a certain amount of DNA damage is produced, every cell's DNA repair mechanisms get triggered, saying, hey, there's all this DNA damage now. Let's see if we can repair it. In healthy cells, there's a very decent chance that that can happen successfully to repair all the damage before the next day's radiation. But in the cancer cells, they don't have very good repair mechanisms, so most of the time it fails. They can't repair that damage in time before the next day. Now, <clears throat> given enough time, they do have enough DNA repair possibilities that given enough time they might be able to, 
which is why you've heard you don't really like to have breaks in radiation treatment. You know, let's say um, a breast cancer patient's treatment is often three to five weeks long. You want to do that every day, right? You don't want to have long breaks in between because it gives the cancer a chance to repair before you've completed all the treatment to try to kill all their, their DNA. Now, why does killing DNA matter? Not killing DNA, sorry. Why does damaging DNA matter? The DNA inside of a cell is accessed every time a cell needs to run a specific code to do something, like repair DNA damage. But the most important thing for cancer killing is every time a cell wants to divide and go from one cell to two cells to four cells to eight cells, every time it wants to divide, it has to access its DNA to run some codes and programs to divide. Well, the more DNA damage accumulates, the greater the chance it can't do that. And when that code fails, it causes something you'll see in that little oval over there called mitotic catastrophe. So the, the general prevailing paradigm of radiation therapy is that it causes mitotic catastrophe. It's a fancy word that means when it tries to go through mitosis or cell division, it doesn't, it can't, it's catastrophic. And the cell, then, <clears throat> the cell then goes on to die because it aborts that code. It can't divide, it can't continue to grow, and then it dies. Now the hope is that the regular cells, the healthy non-cancerous cells, don't succumb to mitotic catastrophe, but sometimes that does happen. Sometimes the amount of radiation we have to give to kill the cancer is still enough radiation that the regular cells can't overcome. And that's when we cause permanent side effects like Dr. Bowen talked about. Now, because of the way radiation works, so let's see, kills cancer cells via accumulated and unrepaired DNA damage, it preferentially affects cells that are trying to go through mitosis. Now, we do have cells in our bodies that don't really go through mitosis anymore, right? Neurons, muscle cells, and that's why those cells are often very resistant to radiation. Um, when I'm giving radiation to someone and it has to go through muscle, like I'm doing proton therapy, it has to go through muscle to get to the target. Patients often ask, well, is this gonna hurt the muscle? That's very rare because muscles are so resistant to it because they don't divide. You can cause all kinds of DNA damage to a muscle, but because it doesn't have to go through mitosis, it usually can resist it. Okay, so, um, when you have a tumor that we're trying to target, it would be awesome if we could just deliver that radiation to the cancer cells and not the regular cells. Because like I said, even though there is this gap in the ability of regular cells to repair that DNA damage, it's not 100%, and so you still kill regular cells. <clears throat> Certain things help with that. Uh, more focused radiation treatments. Radiation has come a long way from where we used to be. Proton therapy, especially, is a lot more precise than regular x-ray therapy. The distance of a healthy cell from the tumor cell matters. As Dr. Bowen mentioned, there is this wake of radiation around the tumor. We are only trying to get the maximum dose to the tumor, but in getting that amount of radiation, there's always going to be this fall-off, this wake of things around the tumor that got radiation. But the farther you get from the tumor, the less and less radiation is gonna be, and it drops off exponentially. So distance is important. So if a tumor is over there, for example, it might be higher risk 
<clears throat> to the retina, because it's right on there, but lower risk to the lens, because it's farther away. A tumor in the front of the eye would be the opposite, so distance matters. Proliferation rate we talked about already matters, and DNA repair mechanisms we've talked about matter. So those three things help differentiate the effects the radiation will have on hopefully the cancer cells from the non-cancerous cells. And that leads to what we call a therapeutic window. So when we give a certain dose, it has a certain chance of killing in blue as a cancer cell and in red as a non-cancerous cell. Ideally, we would have a dose, we would have a, enough separation between these curves that you could have a point where that was up here on the blue curve, but down here, maybe zero on the red curve, right? That's the, that's the holy grail of radiation. Giving certain things like chemotherapy and other cancers or immunotherapy or other things might help widen that gap. Newer techniques like proton therapy might widen that gap. For now, there still is overlap between these two curves in many cancers, including ocular melanoma, and so there is still gonna be a risk of permanent collateral damage. But research is always underway to see if we can kind of widen those two curves. Okay, so that is Radiation Biology 101. During training, <clears throat> we're all taught that. DNA damage, mitotic catastrophe, that's how we kill cancer cells. That was, again, like I've mentioned a few times, the prevailing paradigm for many decades. More lately, we're realizing that that's not it. You know, you can't boil down everything radiation does to just that one single mechanism. It was oftentimes wondering, you know, is it true that the radiation can hit so many things in a cell and just damage the DNA? And people would say, yes, that is, that's true. But we're realizing now that's not always the case. So a lot of research these days are going into finding out how radiation is actually doing stuff through other mechanisms that people kind of discounted before. Dr. Bowen mentioned neovascularization and the effects radiation can have on blood vessels. We're realizing that's a lot. Radiation does all kinds of things that disrupting the, the milieu, so to speak, the environment that the, the blood vessels see. It, it causes death of blood vessels that exist. It causes um, warping of the current blood vessels. It causes growth of new blood vessels. And when they, the new ones grow, they often grow in ways that aren't normal. They're leakier. They have a lot more problems, and that can cause a lot of issues in the future, like the macular edema that he mentioned. But in some ways, there is a good to come from that as well. Tumors, cancers, need blood supply too. And so there's a lot of studies that show that the effect on the blood vessels feeding the cancer by radiation might also contribute towards killing that cancer, especially for large tumors. Cell membrane and proteins. More recent research also suggests that those structures which we used to think were so impenetrable and resistant to radiation can also be directly damaged by radiation and contribute to the effects of radiation. Well, all right, let me, let me go to the next one, because this is actually the most exciting thing. Uh, as many of you might, might know, the most exciting new frontier in oncology for the last 50 years probably is immunotherapy, right? For a long time, you know, science and medicine is all about what we used to think was, was fact, and now it's no longer fact. For a long time, it was thought that cancers evaded the immune system. Cancers were self-cells. They came from ourselves. They have these sneaky ways 
of avoiding being detected by the immune system. And so the immune system doesn't matter. That was, that was what they used to teach us in med school. Now we know that's not true. They do have ways of trying to sneak around the immune system, but we can counter that with modern medicine. We can recruit our immune system to fight the cancer. And that might be our best ally because immune, the immune system is like chemotherapy without the side effects, if you can imagine that. It can fight cancer in every nook and cranny of your body without any of the side effects of chemotherapy. Now we're still in the infancy of trying to learn how to properly and appropriately enhance and recruit the immune system. But one of the areas of research that's really exciting is how radiation affects the immune system, both in general and in its detection of cancer cells. I won't bore you with, and there's way too much research to talk about, but one of the most prevailing theories right now is when a radiation therapy kills a cancer cell, it causes the release into the blood of special proteins that were only present in that cancer cell. Proteins that came about because of mutations in that cancer. Proteins that don't exist in any other cell in your body. Now, normally that cell hid that protein from the immune system, so the immune system could never see it. But with certain techniques, like radiation, sometimes also chemotherapy and other things, the cell dies in a specific way that releases that protein to the immune system, the immune system detects it and says, uh oh, this is, not, this is not me, this is a bad guy. Then they mount an immune response against that protein and can start attacking those cancer cells that have that protein. So pretty interesting. Um, not to belabor the next point because it's kind of fantasy at this point, but the reason this is so exciting, we hope that in the future, right, right now one of the most discouraging states in our field is widely metastatic cancer, right? Melanoma is one of them. It's a cancer that can spread to other parts of the body. Whenever a cancer becomes metastatic, it's often thought to be incurable, right? Really, really tough diagnosis to get. There are a few cases that have been described. Now, we, it's hard to replicate them, but we're really trying hard. Of patients who had widespread cancer everywhere, hundreds of different tumors, melanoma being one of them, that you gave some therapies to that included immunotherapy, you gave a little radiation to to release some of those proteins, and they, all their cancer disappeared. You only gave radiation to one spot, but their cancer everywhere else disappeared, presumably because you, you got the immune system to come in and take care of it. Now again, I, I, I say this with caution because we are so far from being able to actually intentionally achieve that. But that is, is our goal, is if we can discover the other ways that radiation works in cancer, if we can really figure out how we can enable the immune system to help, we can maybe have more and more better treatments for patients with metastatic cancer. I don't know how I'm doing on time, but. Okay, all right. Again, th those are the most important parts I wanted to talk about. How we make a plan is, um, kind of what we don't want the patients to worry about. Uh, that's, that's our job, me and the physicists and my team and Dr. Stacy and all the ocular oncologists. But briefly, what happens is after you've been diagnosed with an ocular melanoma, you're referred to see a doctor like me. We talk about decisions that Dr. Bowen started to touch on, and I think you'll hear about more in other talks later today about which treatment's best for you. Is it plaque brachytherapy? Is it external beam radiation? If it's external beam, do we use protons? Do we use x-rays, which are also called photons? 
Once we decide what we want to treat you with, we have you come in for a bunch of tests that allow us to make the plan that's specific for your anatomy and for your tumor. That involves MRIs, CT scans, a lot of different plans. So this, this is an MRI scan on the left. There's masks involved to immobilize your head when we give you proton therapy that some of you may be familiar with. We have to delineate where the targets are, where the tumor is, how big it is, it, how close is it to certain structures in your eye that are important for us to preserve. And we generate a plan um, based on your specific situation. Plaque design is similar. <clears throat> I'll use different technology, but it's the same idea. Everyone's plaque is going to be a little bit different, uh, and there's different ways that we can select uh, different plaques for, for your specific tumor. Yeah, I'll end with that. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Bo or Dr. Chen and Dr. Bowen. We have just a couple of minutes for questions, and I did have a couple that came in online. If you do have a question, please raise them up. Lauren will come and grab them, and any of the ones that we don't get to, we will do our best to email to Dr. Bowen and Dr. Chen, and we'll get those answers back to you at their leisure <laughs> at the time that you guys have to answer those with clinic and everything. Uh, but this one question for Dr. Bowen, if we can bring him back up on the screen. The first one is from Heather, and she is asking when and where this trial that he referenced will be happening. So I guess if we have a trial number from clinicaltrials.gov, anything like that. That's a great question. So there'll be multiple sites throughout the country. Um, um, I know uh, Dr. Andrew Stacy, Dr. Binkley, myself, multiple people will be uh, PIs on those and being able to offer those. Now, to be part of this particular trial, it would be um, the, the, the melanoma has not yet been treated. And so if it's already been treated, um, then they wouldn't qualify yet. We would get the results and be able to apply that to them at a later time. But these are this particular trial would be for patients that have not yet received treatment. So just to clarify, um, is the trial the trial is focused on preventing or preventing the vision loss after they they are treated, correct? That is correct. So then they you just want someone who's brand new, fresh, never been treated with proton, radiation, whatever whatever option they're going to go with, and then the trial follows them as quickly as possible. That's correct, yes. Okay. Um, from John, he says, how long can you take, there's, I mean, obviously various different types of injections, ILEA, Avastin, the steroid shots, um, but how long can you take injections? Um, is there kind of a window of time for when to start and when you have to stop? Well, that's a great question. Multiple um, comments there. So we use anti-VEGF and steroids for multiple other conditions such as diabetes, macular degeneration, vein occlusions, um, and people have been on these for a very long period of time. Um, when we look at steroids, we do have to be careful because it can induce cataracts and it can increase eye pressure. So you just need to monitor those closely. Um, but as far as when to start, that's actually part of the question that we're trying to answer is, you know, do we do this right after plaque brachytherapy, but before we actually see the macular edema? Or is there no difference if you start early versus later on when you actually see it? 
Mm, no, that, that I'm sure that's a big question. And just with medicine, with like, how do we make sure that we're not causing undue harm if we don't need to do it? Yeah, because um, I mean, with each injection, there is always risk. Yeah, and oh, exactly. so we have to weigh that risk versus the benefit, and um, and that's what we're you know, looking into with this. But at the same time, if we can see significant improvement in vision, then that risk versus benefit um, is 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 then worth it. Okay, well, that makes sense. This is a question for, I believe, for you, Dr. Chen. Um, it says, uveal melanoma often spreads to the liver. Does the liver create any special special barriers for immunotherapy or radiation to work effectively? Yeah, good question. So the liver is very targetable by radiation. So hepatocellular carcinoma, other cancers, liver metastases, in some cancers are treated with radiation. In melanoma, that hasn't been quite as common. And the reason for that is, again, once a cancer has spread, even if it's only seen in the liver, to have gotten to the liver, it had access to the bloodstream. And that means it might be other places as well. And so there's been a lot of focus on therapies that will treat cancer in the whole body, like chemotherapy or immunotherapy, rather than focused treatment. But uh, there is a change in that, I'd say, over the last 10 years even, we're finding out more and more that if you just have a single spread of cancer somewhere else, even though we believe still that there is cancer elsewhere, if it hasn't declared itself there yet, spot treatment of places like the liver can sometimes still be beneficial. Um, again, in melanoma, it hasn't quite taken off yet. In other cancers, it's a little bit more common. There's a lot of options too besides radiation. You may hear of things called uh, radiofrequency ablation, um, thermoablation. There's also some brachytherapy that can be done in the liver with radioactive spheres that we inject into the bloodstream in the liver. So a lot of different potential treatments. We don't often use a lot of them yet in metastatic melanoma. Okay, I feel like that was a good answer to that question. And I, I just... I'm trying to remember who it was that I had talked to that was talking about kind of the similar idea that you mentioned where, you know, we're getting the immune system on board by having that targeted radiation to one location. And it's, I mean, is another way to maybe describe it that it's almost like you're trying to teach the body to vaccinate itself using that radiation to that one spot to be like, oh, you know, <laughs> you're under attack here. We know what to go after now. And now the immune system is a little more hyper alert. Yep, that's exactly the way to think about it. And so okay. In fact, self-vaccination is a common way people use to describe it. No, I love that. I think that's, I mean, if I can will it into existence for myself, I will do it. <laughs> Science aside. Um, okay, well, we have maybe time for one or two more questions. I'm trying to sort through. I think I just have those ones. Okay. Um, is there anything that we can do in advance of issues rising due to post-radiation or past radiation treatment. So I'm going to assume that this person is asking in the sense that maybe they haven't experienced a whole lot of side effects. Um, and if they're, I guess maybe if they're worried about those side effects and whoever wrote this question, if you, if you need to clarify that, please let me know. Uh, but Dr. Bowen, and I guess also Dr. Chen, um, if there's anything that can be done to kind of mitigate those side effects ahead of time, is that, you know, where those, uh, those uh, injections come in or is there anything else you guys know of? you read the question one more time? It says, is there anything we can do in advance of issues arising due to past radiation treatment? Yeah, I mean, I think as far as the clinical trial, that is the question as far as can we, if we give the injections right after treatment, does it make a difference versus waiting until we actually get the macular mm -hmm. edema? Um, 
that's a bit unknown at this point. Yeah. So I guess my, my way of thinking about this, and I'm just going to use myself as an example, is that I had a massive tumor and I had a lot of radiation damage that eventually resulted in me losing my eye, which full disclosure, after plaque, I don't think that is the norm. So if you've had brachytherapy, don't let that panic you. And also like enucleation has been fine. But I think that my doctor opted to not do any Avastin and any um, steroid injections, anything to try to prevent some of those macular degeneration, retinopathy, because I had already lost vision. So in her opinion, she was like, there's, no, there's not a real point to trying to, so, on, you know, so to speak, preserve vision when vision isn't there. If I could go back and do it again, I might opt to say as a, as a patient, you know, can we try this? And can we see if it helps, even if it doesn't bring my vision back? Can we see if it helps with pressure, with cataracts, with whatever other things that I'm showing in my eye? So if I were the patient, again, in that situation, I guess I would say it probably isn't going to hurt to ask your doctor if it sounds like something you want to do. Okay, I think that's all the time we have for questions. So let's go ahead and say thank you. I do have a couple more that I'll send you guys both um, via email. But thank you both for your time. And we will go ahead and move on to our next break. And if I can just get the main slides back up. All right. Ooh, here's my mic. Um, we do want to just take a quick minute quick minute to thank Immunocore, one of our wonderful vision sponsors. Uh, Immunocore is a pioneering clinical stage T-cell receptor biotechnology company working to develop and commercialize a new generation of transformative medicines to address unmet needs in cancer. They are here. If you are virtual, um, you can, I believe, check in with them in the online booths or the exhibitors section, but Immunocore is here. Representatives are outside. You can say hello to them. You can ask them questions. They're all incredibly uh, patient-focused, and they would love to chat with you guys. Their initial therapeutic focus is in oncology, where pivotal clinical trials are currently underway for their lead program, Teventifusp, as a potential... Oh, this is a little outdated. Um, but... They have done clinical trials for Tabentifusp, and we are so grateful for the advancements that have been made there, and we're grateful for them and their sponsorship. So thank you to Immunicore. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. Please be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, Leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.